0: written anything decent in over a year. I haven't had a paying job in three. I fired my agent, got a manager. Managers are more invested in your future. I went to some meetings for some horrible depressing projects that I didn't want in the first place, but then was completely miserable when I didn't get them. Why do I feel the need to drink myself into a blackout because I didn't get the rewrite job for the remake of that fucking robot movie that only had relevance in the first place because it came out in the mid-80s? You know, I'm trying to remember when I liked doing this. What did I write about in high school, in college, when there were no real stakes for me? When this was cathartic and joyful and wildly expressive and everyone said how much talent I had, right up until they started paying me for it? I lost the house. On November 1st, I moved into an old motel on Washington Boulevard, down by the ten. It's a studio, the kind, with no kitchen except for a sink-mini-fridge combo against one wall. It's a one-story building that runs perpendicular to the street, no gate. The neighborhood is basically the old motel and liquor store district of Mid-City. I've actually recognized shots of my neighborhood appearing frequently in exteriors of 90s TV dramas. When that happens, I'll pause what I'm watching, take a screen cap, put it in a folder, and never look at it again. When I tell people where I live... They usually don't know where it is. That's because there's nothing down here. On December 22nd, I go to a friend's birthday gathering at Jones Hollywood. His show just got picked up by AMC. He reassures everybody that it won't make it past the pilot phase. I come home around one o'clock. I wake up at 2.56 a.m. It's pouring rain outside. I think maybe that's what woke me up. Then I realize somebody is knocking on a neighbor's door somewhere down the line of apartments. Shave and a haircut. It's a confident knock. The kind that expects you to open the door. The knock of a lover who momentarily went out for cigarettes and forgot their key. I close my eyes to go back to sleep. But then I hear the knock again. Only this time a little bit louder. And I realize the same person is knocking on a different door with the same knock. Shave and a haircut, but one apartment closer to me. Now I'm wide awake, heart pounding. I'm still a little drunk. I sit up in bed, can't remember if I lock the deadbolt. suddenly reminded of the story from when Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark Books first came out. My older sister brought it home from school, and I was in second grade at the time, and she read this story aloud to me, and I couldn't sleep for a week. I think the story was called The Voice. It's the one where a girl wakes up in bed to a voice telling her, I'm at your front door. Then a few minutes later, she hears it again, telling her, I'm on the stairs, then at her bedroom door, then in her room, then at the foot of her bed, and then when she finally starts screaming and her parents come, there's no one there. He's at my door, his shadow on the blinds, part of his upper body, shoulder, head, He looks giant and hunched over. But there's also distortion from the noir angle of the streetlight. And now he's just standing on my doorstep silently, listening at my door. In the dark, I think I see the doorknob turn once, in one direction, then once back the other. After a moment, the shadow passes by the blinds, And as he passes, I'm trying to peek out the corner of the window, trying to see some part of him as he goes by. But I can't get a look. I hear him knock at the next door. Shave and a haircut. I hear my neighbor rustling behind the wall, waking up noises. It's the apartment of the soft-spoken middle-aged Asian man who also lives alone. We once had a small talk conversation out by the dumpsters about the Pacific Northwest. He goes to conferences in Seattle sometimes. I remember we talked about this one particular bend in I-5 where you turn a corner after hours of nothingness and suddenly the entire skyline of Seattle is revealed all at once. Sometimes after he goes to Costco, he brings me bottles of water just to be nice. He's the kind of guy who would answer his door in the middle of the night. I hear his bed creak. I hear his feet on the floor. I'm screaming at him in my mind, like you do at characters in a horror movie. There's hesitation. He doesn't answer the door, and there's no more knocking. I hear his TV switch on. We both listen to that until we fall back asleep. I remember falling asleep sometime after the sunrise. I dream about somebody vomiting on me. I dream about hiking in Griffith Park on a hot day. When I wake up later that morning, I can't stop thinking about the knocking. My search for knocking on your door late at night returns a message board on a site called Weed Forums with little green marijuana leaf icons by each comment and a Yahoo Answers thread that is hypothetical at best. I specify strange door knocking Los Angeles and find a number of stories over the last year on a group known as Knock Knock Burglars where people will go door to door and see if anyone's home and if not, they break in and rob the place. In September of 2012, they actually formed an LAPD knock-knock burglar task force after a 46% increase in this kind of crime. At that time, there was a group of burglars roaming Beverly Hills dressed in polo shirts and khaki pants, sort of a Beverly Hills disguise, and robbing wealthy homes on the West Side. I find a story from April 11th of this year where a knock knock burglar broke a glass door in West Covina and took jewelry, iPads, and two Newcastle beers out of the fridge when no one was at home. But these scenarios don't really fit mine. I come across some criminal psychology paragraph that indicates a daytime criminal knocker is hoping you're not at home, a nighttime criminal knocker is hoping that you are. I google knock knock killer and get a page of results of a 2011 film featuring Master P of the same title. I click for a synopsis but can't find one. I go back to my original search and try knock-knock killer minus movie. The search returns a cold case in Memphis from 2010 where a guy named Jimmy Driscoll opened his kitchen door to a night knocker and was instantly riddled with bullets. It happened so fast that no one saw anything except for possibly a light-colored Chevy Impala driving away from the scene. There's something weirdly familiar about this. I got pretty into the Zodiac case after the Fincher movie came out. Didn't Zodiac drive a Chevy Impala? I Google Zodiac, Chevy Impala. Confirmed! A 1960 four-door hardtop Chevy Impala was spotted in suspicious locations during the night of the Faraday-Jensen murders and one was also allegedly spotted at the Lake Berryessa stabbings. I briefly pursue the line of thinking that if the Zodiac was in his 20s during his killing heyday, he could be in his 70s now. My Uncle Steve is in his 70s. Uncle Steve still does motocross racing. Zodiac could still be doing murdering. He could have knocked on Jimmy Driscoll's door. He could have knocked on mine. He did have a Southern California connection. They once found a Zodiac handwriting match from a poem carved into a desk at UC Riverside. My parents call to wish me happy birthday. It's my birthday. I don't intend to tell them about the knocker. I don't want to get them excited. They're country people. My mom sleeps with a shotgun at arm's length, and on the other side of the bed, my dad sleeps with two semi-automatics on the bedside table. They have a bedroom on the second floor and an archway cut into the wall that looks down on the main entry point so that they can shoot an intruder without getting out of bed. My sister is there with them, and I ask if she remembers the story, the voice. She doesn't. She asks me if I'm working on anything if I have any prospects. I tell her people aren't really buying anything right now. She tells me I should take myself out to dinner somewhere. She wishes me a happy birthday. Maybe she's right. I should get out of the house. I take a shower. I get dressed and brush my teeth. I shut down my computer. I get my wallet and my keys and my phone. I double-check the mini-fridge because sometimes it doesn't close right. But when I go to leave the apartment, I find that I can't bring myself to touch the doorknob.
1: of them. No, you just go into my closet when I'm not home and put them on. My closet. Well, guess what? I'm a little territorial. Of course you don't remember what the fuck he got all over them. And you know what? I don't want to know. The point is, when you were on Molly kissing other boys at Booty LA, you didn't care what you were getting all over my Dolce & Gabbana Fustian track pants. Who wears those out anyway? You're a child. When I was your age, I could cook. Convenient how they were your size, though, isn't it? Let's see how fit you are in a quarter century. You're lucky I came along, boy. You're lucky I came along. You think I didn't know about Steven? Six months ago, when you were at a party, I went into the bungalow to take my guitar back and you'd left Gchat open. What's his place like? Does he have a pool? Who does he know? You know what? I let it go. I never mentioned it. You're young, I get it. I used to confuse sex and love too. And I gave you too much rope when we started out, telling you to kiss that guy at the end of the bar at the mine shaft that time. But that's me. I'm a giver. I'm a giver and you're a taker. Take, take, take. Come on. Come on. Come on, move it, bitch. It's just sex. I can deal with that. But when you compromise my business, our business, we built it together. We had a real product, a good product. You're really going to tell me that it's illegal to sell flavored protein powders? That's illegal? Really? Show me a law. One law, one bylaw where it says that. I mean, since when? Where are we, Russia? We were in tier one together. Together. We made a lot of money. We did and now you turn around and act like I'm some schemer that roped you into some nefarious plot all because some lawyer is bribing you to set me up. Offering you a payoff. Like that's any different than what you're accusing me of. You've gotten greedy. That's your problem. Maybe you were always greedy. I guess I confuse sex and love. You look good in those pants. I saw your Instagram. I'm an idiot. What gets me is you didn't have the balls to tell me yourself. I got a call from a lawyer. While I'm at the dry cleaner trying to reason with the asshole who says there's nothing he can do about the stains. An ambush. Like so much foxhole in Vietnam, the velociraptors in Jurassic Park distract me from the front by fucking up my $400 track pants and then pouncing from the sides to eviscerate my ass with a $3 million lawsuit out of fucking nowhere. (laughs) You're lucky I'm not a weapons expert. Let me tell you something. That bus stop headshot shyster is looking to make some big case for himself so he can quit chasing ambulances. Fuck the lawyer. Do you think the lawyer's gonna let you live in his bungalow? Yeah, let me know how that works out. (laughs) He's gonna use you just like you use me. You're the frauds. Both of you, you're the fraud. Oh, fuck. Shit! Yay! Who cares? I mean, do you think you're gonna keep any of that money? You think you're gonna find someone else to take care of you? You're going to end up living down here. No gym. No Starbucks. No jogging path. Just reliable insurance. Income tax. Grand Hawaiian Motel. The Brea Radiator. 76 Gasoline. Astro Liquor. American Electrical Supply Company. Yang B Auto. Yang B. Taco Bell Pizza Hut. I guess they're one thing, then. Silver Dream Apartments. <laughs> Silver Dream. Wow. Neon sign out front, dark inside. The thing is, we were happy. We were compatible. In bed, in pitches... And it was amazing how we would go around the room if we were working a a convention or if we were on the phone. We'd just talk to them like we were their therapist. And they would tell us about how they never asked the love of their life to marry them, but how they didn't take that vacation because they didn't want to spend the money about how they never gave their dying mother the ice cream she wanted because the doctor said it was bad for the cancer, but surprise, she died anyway. Seriously, people said things like that to us. And we cared. We really cared. We wanted them all to live better lives. Lives beyond mere survival. Survival is for weak people. Pro doesn't just burn fat and build muscle. It gives you energy and strength. It's not just a supplement. It is opportunity. You gonna answer that? That's opportunity, baby. Opportunity doesn't wait around. It's got places to be. You can't sign up for this on a website later. You can do this here, now, in person because we care about people. We care about you, because you're the people who cared enough to come here today. This is your reward. This isn't a free for all. It's limited. This is exclusive. Your passion brought you here. Now, is anybody out there gonna answer? And someone, every single time, and always at the last possible second, would knock back two bits. And soon everybody was knocking the shit out of that conference table. Guys with hairy knuckles, ladies with rings on, it was beautiful. Passion to profit. time I asked you to meet me at the bar at the Avalon. I was waiting outside by the driveway, leaning against a tree, and I saw you across the street. You were trying to find the place, walking quickly. You were wearing your blue shirt, looking confused. (laughs) I called to you. You turned your head. You saw me. Getting On with James Urbaniak Episode 17, Two Bits was written by Brie Williams and James Urbaniak and performed by Janie Haddad Tompkins and James Urbaniak It was produced by James Urbaniak and Dustin Marshall This program is part of the Feral Audio Network Visit feralaudio.com for prior episodes and other podcasts